good reading, like good writing, you sort of forget that you're reading and uh, you just transport it into that world and you just can't stop turning the pages. Hey readers, I'm Ann Vogel and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 115. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, before we get started today, I want to read a terrific email I just got from a listener, which is strangely wonderful timing for me. Okay, I'm going to obscure personal details, but here's what it says. Hi, Anne. As a regular listener, I usually listen as soon as an episode airs, but this time, save the listening experience to keep me company on a flight. The episode was conveniently the same length as my flight, which helped it seem like no time at all. But the timing went ironically awry when at the same moment, Jamie Golden, this was last week's episode 114, was discussing how she thinks through where her plane could crash when she travels, my plane began an abrupt and turbulent descent. I looked out the window to the snowy prairie rapidly approaching below and thanked the Lord we had already passed over the Rocky Mountains. Your advice to not read about airplane crashes while flying was duly noted, and my moment's panic solidified that memory. I arrived safely so I can now safely laugh about the podcast timing that caused me a great flight memory and wanted to share the laugh with you. Your voice through the credits accompanied me and reassured me all the way to the gate for which I am grateful. I just love that. And actually, I was traveling myself last week. I shared a little on Instagram that I was on the Oregon coast for work. And I am not always a fearless traveler when it comes to airplanes. And I picked up an advanced reader copy myself, knowing nothing about it, but so excited to have another book in my hands or actually on my Kindle from the author. And I read the author's note at the beginning of the story and went, oh, this book is about a plane crash and just moved on. Now that I'm safely back on the ground, it might be time to pick that up. So you can email us your thoughts, suggestions, feedback, and funny in-flight reading stories. The easiest way is to hit reply to our newsletter. You can sign up at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. We love hearing from you. Thank you so much. Today, I'm chatting with John August. John is a screenwriter. You may know him from his works Big Fish or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or the new live-action Aladdin. He's also a devoted reader and a middle-grade author. And in today's episode, I really enjoyed discussing how film and books are totally different when it comes to telling a good story. As of this morning, John also has a brand new podcast out in the world. It's called Launch. And as someone who loves to go behind the scenes of book publishing, I can't wait to listen. The six-episode podcast is all about the launch of John's first middle grade novel, Arlo Finch in the Valley of Fire, out February 6th. If you're intrigued by how a book is born, from the initial idea to landing an agent to the editorial process to printing and book tour and the author's emotional journey the whole way through, this one's for you. John covers it all in launch through personal anecdotes and in-depth interviews with industry professionals. We cover all this and more in today's episode. Let's get to it. John, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you today because we have a community of avid listeners here. And I don't just mean that like as a pick a random adjective, we're enthusiastic about reading. I mean, our people read a ton and we are collectively fascinated by how the books are made and how they come into being. And you can push all our buttons (laughs) across the (laughs) spectrum because of your professional background and what you have going on now. So I'm really excited about that. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Um, I, I like that readers can be obsessive. I like this quote that bookmarks are for quitters. That sense of people <laughs> who just who just keep plowing through books. And uh, I've been at that at different times of my life, and I feel like I'm back in that that mode right now. Especially coming off the holidays. Holidays are a huge reading time for me, so I got a lot read over the holidays. Me too. There are few times of year where I can go through a book a day, like I can between Christmas and like January 3rd. Yeah, it's it's a great, great time. And I had just turned in a book. So I didn't have, I wasn't competing between, you know, the book I'm supposed to be writing and the book I'm reading. It was just all intake, which was great. All right. So let's dive in. Since you mentioned that you just turned in a book, you have a lot going on professionally. And I would like to talk about all of it, your career prior to 2016, and not just what you have going on in the future. But you have a middle grade trilogy, Mm -hmm. first installment coming out on February 6th, right around the corner. And something I really wanted to know was, 
where are you currently in the process? So I've heard you say of your screenwriting, which I definitely want to dive into, that you, you have to know where you'll end up before you can even begin, let alone figure out the middle. What book did you just turn in? Where are you currently in the process? So I just turned in the second book. So the first book is Arla Finch in the Valley of Fire. The second book is Arla Finch in the Lake of the Moon. Uh, the first book is a winter book. It is, you know, uh, an icy cold book. Uh, the second book is summer camp. And so I had to put myself in a summer camp space for it, which was great. Um, so I've just turned in the first draft of it to my mm -hmm. editor. I'm getting my notes back from her probably this afternoon. And so oh, wow. I'm excited and terrified and, uh, <laughs> but less so than the first book, because at this time I, I sort of know what the work is ahead for me, which is a lot, but I'm excited to do the work. So that book, you know, I'll be editing that all this spring and then it'll go in and then I'll owe another book for the next year. So the, the challenge of a series is there's a book a year and I need to hit that, you know, schedule. When is book two coming out? Book two comes out the same time next year. So, you know, sometime in the winter, you know, early spring of 2019. I'm really bad with year math, but yes, <laughs> uh, each, each year it'll come out with a, a new edition. And I remember loving that as a kid. I grew up reading a bunch of series. and But back then, there wasn't the internet. I couldn't know when stuff was coming out. Mm -hmm. I remember reading The Three Investigators, which were these great detective novels. It was Alfred Hitchcock and The Three Investigators. And the only way to figure out when a new book was out was to go to the bookstore. And I, there was at Hatch's Books in Boulder, Colorado, there was one shelf where they would always be. And I'd, I'd, I'd scan down the row. I was like, oh my God, there's a new book. And then everything stopped while I read The Secret of Shark Reef. That thrill of a series is great. I, I don't want to miss my deadlines because I want the kids who like the series to be able to keep reading the next book. Times have changed. Yeah. But now everybody knows. Like Now it's printed in the book when the next one's coming out. So <laughs> Marketing has changed too. It has a lot. Do you know where the series is going to end up? I do. So when I sold the first book, I had to sort of put out an outline sort of like, this is what happens obviously in book one, book two, and book three. It's sort of a, it was kind of a general thing. It was just a couple paragraphs about what happens in book three, but there's a lot of stuff which is set up in book one and in book two that is designed to pay off in book three. So could the series go on beyond book three? Absolutely. But there's a lot of sort of big story arc stuff that finishes up in book three. Now, up until now, professionally, you've been a screenwriter and quite a successful one. How did you go from writing for the big screen to, and I am so, I don't speak that language, so excuse me for my cheesiness here, but how did you go from writing scripts to writing this middle grade series? Well, a lot of what I do as a screenwriter is adapt people's books into movies. That's what I get sent to do. That's the work I get hired to do. And so Big Fish was an adaptation. Uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was an adaptation. And uh, this whole process started because I got sent a book to adapt. Um, Kenneth Opal's book, The Nest, which is mm -hmm. a really great middle grade title. And I had this great conversation with him asking about the book and the whole process and sort of what was important to him. And by the end of that phone call, this is two years ago, uh, I was like, you know what? I, I kind of think I am ready to write my own book. And I started that night. And that was the genesis of Arlo Finch. It was an idea that it was a space that I sort of knew I was eventually going to write about. It was my childhood. It was growing up in Colorado in the mountains and scouts sort of pushed into a magical way. But that was the night I started. And I wrote the first chapter. And that's really the same first chapter that comes out next month. Do you remember what he specifically said that made you think, it's time, I can do this? Here's what I guess I didn't fully understand, because his book is a little scary. It's, a, it's kind of Stephen King-like. And I asked him, like, is this really appropriate for kids? Like, is it, do you really, are you writing this for kids? And he's like, oh, no, I'm writing this for middle grade. And he really explained what middle grade fiction was. And it kind of broadened the perspective of what those books can do and would do. I, I was obviously familiar with Harry Potter, but the lead character in a middle grade fiction tends to be about the age of the reader. So it's that eight to 12 year old kid who's going on this journey. But the language is not dumbed down. It's not simplified. And when I realized like, oh, you know what? It's probably the same kind of writing I'm really doing for a lot of my screenwriting just in book form. And uh, so I wrote the book that I, I would like to have read when I was eight years old, but also a book that I wanted to read now. And 
I think the reason why you see a lot of adults reading middle grade fiction is some of it's really good. And it's a chance to sort of put yourself back in the place of what it was like to be that age. It seems that a lot of readers have misconceptions about what it actually means for a book to be for middle grade readers. Now, do you find yourself championing the genre, like defending what it really means? Absolutely. I think my husband, Mike, uh, he read I have a daughter who's now 12 years old, but as she was starting to read her own chapter books, he would always read with her. And he really enjoyed a lot of the books he was reading. He was reading like 39 Clues and that kind of stuff. And once he moved past like the very elementary books and into some real books with plot, they're really quite good and enjoyable. And there's just a whole range of literature that I think a lot of adults don't see unless they have kids. And some of that stuff is really good. Were you reading a lot of middle grade fiction before you had this conversation about the nest that inspired you to start writing Arlo Finch? I wasn't at all. And so I was only reading sort of grown up books and official books. <laughs> and, uh, and I wasn't even reading a ton of fiction altogether. I would read, you know, a couple of bestsellers a year and sort of remind myself what it was like to read literary fiction, but I was reading mostly nonfiction. So I was reading Gone Girl and just being blown away by how remarkably well plotted it was. And I guess as a screenwriter, I'm always reading fiction with the idea of like, how do I adapt this into a movie? That's it's sort of my default posture is what translates into a movie. And when so much of what you're reading is for work, you stop kind of enjoying the read sometimes. What was it like for you as someone who has that screenwriter brain constantly running, it sounds like, to write something for a different kind of page? Could you turn off that kind of your brain when you were writing Arlo Finch? I was happy I was able to really turn that off. I'd never thought about this as the movie version of Arlo Finch. I was only writing the book. I'm sure there are a lot of writers who are listening to this podcast. And when you're writing fiction, prose fiction on the page, you have so many superpowers that a screenwriter doesn't have. As a screenwriter, I can only describe what you see and what you hear. I, don't, I can't describe textures and smells and feelings. I don't have the ability to go inside a character's head. And so everything has to be pushed very external as a screenwriter. So the chance to go internal, to really let story work in a way where you're inside a character's head, where you can move back and forth in time really smoothly. That was remarkable. So I, I wanted to use all those sort of prose superpowers and not be thinking about like, well, how does this become a movie down the road? If it does, fantastic. But that was never a goal as I was writing it. It's interesting to me. As a writer, I found that so many of the how to write books are by and for screenwriters. It's interesting for me to hear you talk about the real advantages of not writing for the screen. What else surprised you about the book writing process? This is going to sound really obvious, but books have so many words. And so <laughs> one of the first things you learn in screenwriting is a sort of ruthless efficiency. You have to be able to communicate the most with the fewest words possible because people will read the dialogue, but they won't really read very much of the scene description, the other stuff around there. So you work to craft those sentences to be incredibly tight, incredibly effective at what they're doing. With prose fiction, you just have so many more words to work with, but also so many more choices. Every sentence is a brand new opportunity. You can go anywhere. And so all that freedom is amazing, but also exhausting. It's that paradox of choice. Like, what do I want to do next? What is the best way to get into this idea? Am I going to actually have the characters say this into a sort of double quoted dialogue? Or am I going to summarize it? Am I going to have it be reported speech? There's so many different choices on how you move through a moment in fiction versus how it has to work on a screenplay. What's your process like? And was it clunky for a while as you figured out how to write for the, I keep wanting to say for the page, but they're all pages, right? They're all, they're all pages. You know, my process wasn't all that different than screenwriting. I tried to take my job really seriously in terms of like, I am responsible for getting stuff written every day. And so I would sit down and I would, I just, I'd keep at it. I started the whole book just coincidentally on October 31st at the start of NaNoWriMo, the National Novel Writing Month. And so I used that as sort of a framework for like, you know what, I'm just going to try to write as much as I can in November. And so I would sit down every day and try to get through my a thousand words would be great. If I didn't have a thousand, that's also fine. Um, but just try to make sure I was generating enough stuff so I'd have something to show at the end of the month. What I find incredibly helpful for me is I'll start, I'll do an hour's worth of work. I call it a writing, writing sprint where I just, I, I set the timer and for that next hour, I'm not doing anything other than writing the book. I'm not checking Twitter. I'm not Googling anything. I'm just plowing through work. And at the end of an hour, I let myself stand up, 
walk away and do something else. I'll come back later in the day, but that one hour is just about me and the book. And that's been the process for the first and the second book, just really getting it done in those hour-long chunks. Okay. I have a very specific question for you. All right. Would you tell me about your weird keyboard? Because I've never seen anything like it. So I'm I'm at my standing desk in front of my weird keyboard. So let me try to paint a visual for listeners here. So imagine a typical computer keyboard. Now chop it in half and then stick those two pieces vertically so they're just standing up on their edge. That's what my keyboard looks like. It's made by a company called SafeType. And I used to have horrible carpal tunnel problems to a point where I couldn't type anymore. And uh, this keyboard and also a mouse that's vertical like this have completely changed my life. I can type for hours and I'm okay with it. Um, so it sort of looks like I'm playing an accordion because I'm, I'm typing. My, <laughs> my hands are, 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 are vertical and uh, it's just so much more natural. It's that process of twisting your wrist over so that your fingers are pointing down. That's what ends up being so damaging to you know, the long-term health of your, your hands and your wrists. Um, my symptoms were when I had the worst carpal tunnel, every night I would go to, to bed and then like two in the morning, I'd wake up and both of my arms would be dead, like pins and needles dead. It's to a point where I have to like flop my body over and to try to like shake some blood back into them. It was really scary. And luckily I never had after surgery. I didn't have the, the crazy gloves, just changing my work setup, a lower desk when I'm typing and a good keyboard. I'm so much better. Was the carpal tunnel brought on solely by typing? I'm kind of hoping you had some like weird nervous tick where you'd balance yourself on your wrist so that I can think, oh, thank goodness that won't happen to me. But now I'm terrified. Typing was a lot of it. I think there were also some computer games I was playing that were a lot of clicking. And uh, anything you do where you're just doing the same thing again and again can be a problem. So the standard advice about taking breaks and making sure you're not doing the same thing again and again is certainly part of it. Um, and also I'd say, this same desk I'm talking to you at where I'm, I'm standing up, the keyboard tray lowers very, very low. So it's like almost at my lap. And that helps a lot too. So if you're not hunching your shoulders up to, to be up there typing, that's another big help. What was the adjustment process like to get used to typing on this keyboard? I just can't. I'm yeah. staring at my keyboard right now thinking, oh. How would you do it? So here's the thing is you have to not think about it because if you're an experienced typist, your fingers just know where to go. And the fingers are going to the same places. It's just you can't see where they're going, but they really will find the same keys. The keyboard has these special little mirror wings that fold out for finding the weird keys, like the numbers and the function keys. You, you figure that stuff out really quickly. What's weird to get used to about this keyboard is things like shortcuts, so the command key combinations, they're a lot harder for your hands to do. So I have a separate little side keyboard that is really designed for gamers who are playing like, you know, Know, big Call of Duty kind of games on their computers. And I have a lot of stuff mapped to that. So for select all, copy, paste, all that stuff, I do that with my left hand on this other little small keyboard. Does it make a difference to you creatively to use this different kind of setup? Because I'm thinking that I wouldn't see my hands nearly as much if they were further from me. It might feel a little more disembodied, like my brain was putting the words on paper effortlessly. <laughs> or is it just purely a physical workaround. Isn't it true though, like whenever you're really working, whenever you're, it's really, you're in flow, you stop kind of noticing that you even have hands and you're just, you're just in this space. I feel really lucky that whether I'm using this keyboard or if I'm just like on a plane typing on my laptop on my, literally on my lap, once it's clicking, I kind of forget about it. I'm just in this place. And so I don't know that the setup has really changed me creatively. It just made it possible for me to work. So John, you went from screenwriter to author. You do have a podcast, though. I was thinking now you're going to podcasting, but that's not true. You've had, it's Script Notes, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so I have a podcast for the last six years called Script Notes. It's a weekly podcast with Craig Mazin where we talk about screenwriting things. And uh, it's been great. It's a, it's a standard. It's like this podcast now. It's just two people chatting. That is a century in podcasting years. It is. We were quite early on. So uh, it was before like we were even on Libsyn, which is one of the big hosting providers. Like, <laughs> we were just like on a little server on Amazon. It yeah. was crazy. So uh, the whole podcasting business has grown up so much in the last six years. And now you're getting ready to start a new one. I am. You want to tell us about it? Because I'm so curious. So when I started writing the book, literally from that first conversation with Kenneth Opal, I started recording all the conversations. And I just had a hunch that it would be helpful somewhere down the road. I wasn't sure it was a podcast or a book or something, but the, the process of it felt really interesting. It was like exploring a new place. Dozens and dozens of hours of tape and a lot of interviews. And so it's now sort of being put together in a podcast called Launch. So it'll be a six-episode series. The first episode, probably the first two episodes, 
come out on January 22nd. And it's following the whole process of the book from really conception to starting to write it to getting an agent. I got an editor uh, dealing with notes. I talk about the sort of shadow of Harry Potter because when you write middle grade fiction, that's sort of the, the big comparison you're always put against, whether you like it or not. Um, I talk about you know getting the cover done, getting the audiobook done. And then just yesterday, I flew to I flew to Harrisonburg, Virginia to uh, see the book being printed. So I was literally there as the very first copies came off the line. So um, I've just loved to see sort of the whole behind the scenes process of how a book gets put together. I have never found a podcast like this before, but it sounds like you're answering in six episodes so many of the questions we get from our listeners and that I had before I went through this process myself about how a book actually comes to fruition. Yeah. So it's been a great chance to talk with sort of all the people whose job it is to do the little steps along the way and what they're looking for and what is important to them. And, you know, like when we made the deal to sell the book, it was great to see it from my side, but then I could talk to them like, what was the discussion on their side? I got to hear like, you know, what actually happened as the emails went in and like, what was the decision process and why did they decide to make the offer they decided to make? That was great. Plus, I talked to a lot of other authors to see what their experience has been because I'm not the only screenwriter who's gone off to try to write a book. And some of them, it's gone really well. And some of them, it really hasn't gone well. And so I'm trying to be very mindful that, you know, this book could do great or it could just be another book on a shelf. And I don't know how it's going to turn out. So part of the reason why it's exciting to do this podcast is I know what the first four episodes are. I know sort of how the book is going to come out into the world, but I don't know how it's going to be received. I don't know whether it's going to be a success or a flop or something in between. And where are you going to leave us at the end of episode six? So episode five will be out on the road. So episode four should come out the day the book comes out. So February 6th, episode five is me out on the road. So I'll be doing school visits. I'll be doing some live events in six cities. And uh, so it's a two week little book tour I do. And then episode six, we'll sort of see what happened all the way down to when I was at the printing plant yesterday, I put stickers in five books. I was sort of like, the magic tickets in Charlie and the Chocolate yes. Factory, and uh, to track to see where those five books ended up. So somewhere out in the world, well, somewhere in U.S. and Canada, because that's where the book's coming out, somebody's going to pick up that book, and there'll be a sticker, and hopefully they'll email me to say, hey, I got this, and uh, I get to send them something cool, and hopefully talk to them for the podcast to see where that book showed up and what they think. Hopefully they dug the book. Oh, that's so much fun. Now, It's very rare for an author to go to the actual printing press and watch the books roll off the line. I'm trying to visualize this. I don't know what that would actually look like unless they're signing a few thousand copies or if they are nearby and just want to indulge their nerdy writerly heart. What was your, did you sign books also or were you going for the podcast? I was going for the podcast. So we recorded everything and the people there were amazing and so generous with their time. So they showed us every little part of the process. And so I got to talk to the folks who are, you know, printing the book, but also that was a whole separate process from binding the book. And so I got to see every little step of it down to sort of how the signatures are stacked together and how the edges are shaved off and glued together. So that episode, which is going to come out the day of of the book, uh, is called Paper and Glue. And it was so amazing to make. I, I owe such a debt to some of the really great NPR podcasts, the Planet Monies, the things that sort of dig into process, because that was really what was in my head is like, what do I not know and, and how do I get the the chance to sort of explore these things and to see like what a book looks like when this all comes together. And it was really emotional to see this book that I've been working on for two years in physical form, like literally warm off the press. Like a cookie. Yeah. Is there photography or video content to go with the podcast? There is some stuff. And uh, inside the, the printing plant, I was not allowed to take pictures of certain things because there are trade secrets. Really? Uh, Yeah. You wouldn't think there are trade secrets, but this is the biggest, I think, trade book printer in the world. And uh, they're that way for a reason because they're really, really good at what they do and they take it really seriously. But yeah, there's some, there's some images along the way, but I try to try to be true to sort of the audio roots of things. Like, I don't know what your experience has been, but whenever I sort of see the person behind a podcast, they never look quite like what I hope they would look like. Uh, I sort of build an image in my head or even when I listened to um, S-Town, which was brilliant, mm-hmm. and then I saw the pictures and stuff, it's like, oh, it kind of broke it for me. So, I'm, Oh, no. Yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to let it be just an audio story, and we'll see, if that, we'll see how that works. John, what about this process of creating and launching a book has surprised you the most? 
that that you're legally allowed to talk about? I would say one huge difference between writing a book and writing a screenplay is a screenplay is always a plan for making a movie. It's you know a template. It's a blueprint. And the words are really important, but they're only important until the scene is shot. And then they just they go away. And it's all about the footage, the film, and not about the script. And so in this part of the process, when getting notes from my amazing editor, Connie Shu, or um, talking with the proofreaders or all that stuff, I really could worry about every comma. And every comma was important. And that's never been my experience as a screenwriter because it's always just about the movie. It's never about the book itself. So I was really surprised how seriously everyone took my goals, my um, intentions with those words on the page. That was remarkable. You also recognize that you repeat yourself in ways that you don't think you're going to do. And so a lot of the editing process was like, you know, two pages ago, you used that same unusual word. You, you still have a memory of it. It's still in your buffer. So let's find a different word for that. Like all of that was really fascinating and so different than anything I was used to as a screenwriter. Really? I mean, I've never written scripts, so I don't know what that's like, but I definitely know the feeling of having your editor circle marvelous four times on three pages. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's not my word. It's probably fantastic. Yes, that, that, it totally happens. And it wouldn't happen in a screenplay just because there are so few words in a way, um, but because you are responsible for describing everything in a book and really painting out the entire universe, sometimes those adjectives show up too often or just little weird turns of phrases. The other thing which I, if I could change anything about books in English is how we do dialogue because other languages have just made very different choices about how they portray dialogue. And it's a lot more natural, I think, than how we do it in English with our double quotes and the he said, she says. All that stuff becomes kind of invisible as a reader, but it's just kind of torture as a writer to try to find ways to make it clear who's speaking without calling attention to the fact that you're making it clear who's speaking. I would love to hear more about that. I'd never thought about how it was different in English than in other languages. So a lot of other languages, Spanish, for example, uh, they use these long dashes to indicate like this is dialogue. And within the dash, you have this stuff. And it just becomes just simpler and just more natural about how you move through things. Um, I just read Sally Rooney's book, Conversations with Friends. And she does that sort of reported speech kind of thing where like, she never break, breaks out the quotes, but it becomes pretty clear who's talking during what stuff. And uh, it's delightful. So I know I can't do that in Arlo Finch. It just wouldn't make sense. But I'm longing to write a book that I can use that technique because it just was so delightful to read. That's really interesting. I would not have thought about that. John, I would love to hear how your reading life is different now than it was before you started writing your own middle grade novel. Great. You know, I was reading a lot of nonfiction. And so classically, my reading time during the day has been I'm in bed that half hour before I turn off the light, that's when I tend to do a lot of my reading. And sometimes my head is moving so fast that I need a book that's like interesting slash boring. And so uh, a great book example of that is a history of something, you know, a, a book about like the 50 greatest modern inventions that changed the world. Those are books that like I'm interested in the moment, but the minute I set the book down, I have forgotten about it. That's a really good sort of like mind wipe at the end of the day. And so I would say for years, that's been my sort of default book to go to at the end of the day, is that sort of interesting slash boring? Because I didn't want to sort of get my mind intrigued by a new piece of fiction at night. Um, but I'd say while writing Arlo Finch, and particularly this last bit as the book has been turned in, I've been reading a lot more fiction just for the joy of fiction, and also to see how other writers are dealing with issues on the page and really vastly different styles of communicating what's happening inside their characters' heads, what the world is like, how florid and, and and huge their sentences are versus the tight and compact sentences. It's just been a great chance to see the diversity of writing voices out there. And so I've really enjoyed reading a lot more fiction the last six months. Do you find yourself approaching that fiction differently than you did, be, than you did before you were a writer? Definitely. And I think it's because I know what it's like to have to get through that kind of work on the page and to see the different choices people make. It's the same thing, like, if you played tennis a lot, you start to notice things about tennis, you know, watching games that you wouldn't notice otherwise. You sort of see all that stuff. And when I watch tennis, I just, like, I follow the ball. I can't follow sort of the choices that the players are making on the court. Now, having done a little bit more, I can really see the choices that writers are making on the page 
and what's working for me as a reader and sometimes what's not working for me. You know what? I would love to hear some of your favorites. And you know how we do things on this show. Are you ready to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately? Absolutely. So uh, the three books I chose for favorites are, we start with My Side of the Mountain, which is the only book that I actually name check in Arlo Finch. So My Side of the Mountain is, I just looked it up, it's from 1959. It's so uh, so old, but uh, Gene Craighead George is the author. I remember getting the, I think it was a scholastic book that I bought and I remember the, the photo on the cover. Um, I remember all the feeling of it. I didn't remember the characters' names, but just this boy who runs away, uh, moves into this tree, basically this hollowed out tree. He has a falcon, he has a leather door, he makes acorn pancakes. It was just such a remarkable fantasy for me because I think most kids you know, have that fantasy of like, if I could run away and have complete agency over my life, control of my destiny, everything would be so much better. And here's the story of a kid who does that. Um, so I have not gone back and revisited it as an adult. And I'm a little bit scared too, because sometimes you have this perfect memory of a book and then you go back as an adult and you start to notice the flaws. And I, I don't want to do that for this. I don't want to do that for the three investigators. I want my, my memory pure. I can appreciate that. That is a real fear. Um, second book I picked is Pride and Prejudice, um, which I'm sure has been a pick of a, a zillion writers on your podcast. It's just so good and just so modern but what's so fascinating is I didn't get it the first time I tried to read it. Uh, so I was assigned it as summer reading in high school. I just kind of powered through it and didn't really understand it. I didn't understand that it was funny. Uh, it's hard to imagine that a book so great just didn't actually click in my brain the first time I read it. But going back and reading it, I think it was 15 years ago, I read it again as an adult and uh, just was marveled at it. It does not feel period in a way. There's th these modern insights of you know why people are doing what they're doing the the form she's taking is brilliant it's just uh it's a remarkable achievement and i read the book and then i also saw the the colin firth uh miniseries which is fantastic and it was a great chance to see sort of how you can take kind of the fullness of a book and try to explore it on the screen i wouldn't be too rough on your teenage self though right. i mean do you ever think how classics would probably be so much better appreciated by people the whole world over if they didn't have to read them in high school Maybe so. And that actually feeds in very well to my third choice, which is To Kill a Mockingbird, because somehow I had not read it as a kid or read it in school, or I only had to read part of it, but I didn't have a good memory of it. But my daughter, who's 12, she's going to read it this year. I'm excited for her to read it, but I'm also a little bit sad because it's going to be work for her and it's not going to be joy for her. Because I read this maybe four years ago, it was before Arlo Finch. But it was a huge influence for me on Arlo Finch because you have this young protagonist in a book that really is not middle grade fiction. It has a young hero, but it's not for kids. And the whole story is told through her eyes. But as an adult, you get to really see all the things that she doesn't see. And that's the, the, the most clever magic trick that Harper Lee does is really limit your perspective and yet still show us things that your hero herself can't understand. And I tried to do that in Arlo Finch where an adult reading the book sees that there's a, a much more complicated thing happening among the adults in the book that Arlo himself can't quite puzzle out. You know, John, I actually read in one of your interviews that a consistent through line in your work has been characters that are torn between two worlds. And we've referenced Arlo Finch in this book that's coming out on February 6th a lot, but we haven't really dug into that. But now that you've talked a little bit about how Scout is figuring out, I mean, you could look at Scout and say how she's her two worlds are the world of her youth mm -hmm. and uh, the world of the adults around her that she is rapidly growing up into, but not quite fast enough for her taste at times. Does that hold true for Arlo Finch? And what are those two worlds that he is inhabiting? Absolutely. For Arlo Finch, it is 100% accurate that there's there's two worlds. So Arlo Finch is a 12-year-old boy who moves from Chicago into this mountain town in Colorado. It's his town that his mother grew up in. It's called Pine Mountain. Uh, they're moving into this old family house. He has this Uncle Wade who's eccentric at a minimum. Um, there's, there's weird tensions there. But quite early on in the story, he meets these kids at school who are like, oh, you have to join Rangers. And so Rangers is equivalent of Scouts, equivalent of Boy Scouts that I grew up in, um, except that Rangers, sort of the woods that they're growing out into, they're kind of magic. And so there's the normal sort of woods, but there's also the long woods, which is this sort of fantasy world sort of beyond uh, the edges of our normal experience. And there are creatures there that are quite dangerous, and there are things that the rangers can do because they're on this borderland between the normal world and the long woods. 
uh, that can do these little small magical things. So it's not spells. It's not, you know, wizarding school. It's a very naturalistic kind of magic that happens. Arlo Finch in a very classic middle grade fantasy series tradition is not good at it at the start, but it's actually surprisingly important for what's going to be happening. He has a role in this to play. And that's the journey of the first book and obviously it carries off a lot in the second and third books. Do you, are you able to put your finger on what it is about the person straddling two worlds that appeals to you as a concept? I think almost all fiction is about kind of what ifs and what is, what happens when an ordinary person gets put into extraordinary circumstances. And a lot of times that journey that a character takes is from a place of comfort and stability into a place that is dangerous, into a place that is unexpected where you're trying to learn the rules of that world. And so whether it's a kid from Alabama who has to navigate New York City high finance or literally a kid who has to go into these you know magical long woods, there's often that sense in the stories that I like to tell that are about a kid on a journey or a person on a journey into a world that he's not really ready to handle and having to figure that out. Yeah. And that's interesting. Fiction is about what ifs, isn't it? Yeah. John, what's a book you're not so crazy about? The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Ooh, you, you'll have a, sorry, that wasn't a, I can't believe you went there. That was a, I think you'll have lots of um, support behind you. Yeah. And that, yeah, people really get fired up about Ayn Rand. Tell me more about your experience. So here's what it is. It's that, it's that flinch of recognizing that there was a moment which I thought like, oh my God, this is the best book ever. So I read this book between senior year of high school and freshman year of college. And I showed up at college kind of with this chip on my shoulder and like I was just ready to be a jerk um, because the worldview that she she posits in it is that indomitable, strong wills, take no prisoners, never cooperate, never bend. That is the template for what a real hero should be. And so I was thinking like, yeah, right on. And uh, fortunately, I made friends uh, in college early who just smacked that out of me. And uh, I got to recognize that things are much more complicated than uh, the worldview that put forth by the characters in the Fountainhead and that the kind of sexualized, tragic, indomitable spirit is really just a trap that people build for themselves. So I think I, I put it as my least favorite book because it is so tempting for a person of a certain age and a certain vulnerability to fall into that. And I did. And I luckily got knocked out of it quickly. Is it unusual for you to be deeply affected by a book in the way The Fountainhead affected you? Or is it noteworthy for that? Um, no, I think you always have to let yourself fall for a book. If you don't, then you're just, you know, you're holding it literally at arm's length. You know, you can barely read the print. You're, you're trying to keep it away from yourself. Big Fish is a book that affected me incredibly deeply. I read that as a manuscript and uh, I just, I immediately connected with it. I knew exactly what it felt like. I knew what that world was. And uh, so I held on to it. And there have been lots of books over the years that you have these strong relationships with. And most times you move on, but uh, some things you keep coming back to, and those are your favorites. But I guess you got to be careful about what you come back to. Yes. Or count on your friends to smack it out of you. Absolutely. John, what are you reading now? So I've just finished three things. And so over the break, I read Turtles All the Way Down by John Green, which is actually the first John Green book I've read. It was delightful. I'm hesitant to recommend it to my daughter, who I think would overall like it. I worry it's going to trigger some anxiety things that she doesn't really have. But just in the sense that you identify so strongly with John Green's character and her anxieties, I, I worry it could be a, a slide down into to dark places. But uh, just it was delightful. And I, I started off expecting plot that didn't happen, but I was delighted with the character stuff I got. Okay, I can see that. And I see what you mean about the... It's obsessive compulsive disorder, isn't it? I just read this a couple months ago. Yeah, so it's... I don't think I don't think it's called OCD in, in the book, but it's that plus some other things too. Where, uh, yes, I wouldn't want to present my children with an array of things that could be wrong with them that they're not currently aware might even be issues. Absolutely. So I, for the right kid, I think it's absolutely appropriate, even a kid who's like dealing with some anxiety, to see sort of that that kid is not alone. But I, I worry right now at this moment, I don't think it'd be the right book for her. Um, there's other two books I read over the break, um, which were both fascinating. And to read them back to back was so interesting. So I read Call Me By Your Name, uh, Andre Asimov's book, because I'd love the movie. So I'm like, let's read the book. Uh, the book is fantastic. And I can totally see why the producers took the book and worked so hard to make it into a movie. I love the movie. The book is able to explore inside the character's head and really sort of dig into why he's doing and thinking the things he's doing. 
uh, the book does a great job of framing it sort of in context. Again, it goes down to sort of how you are presenting the story. And so the narrator of the book is an older person remembering back to a time versus a movie which has to, by necessity, be in that moment. And so it's a very different perspective on who those characters are and what they want, but they're both great. So it's terrific to read that. But I also read Daniel Handler's All the Dirty Parts, which is, again, about a young man uh, sort of exploring sexuality, and she's just sort of incredibly horny. And they're bo- so both these books were about just incredibly horny young men, but Asiman's book is incredibly descriptive and florid and will go on about Brahms for pages. And Handler's book is written in the the way the main character himself would write it. You take a character you think would never actually even read a book, trying to write a book. It's a really short, choppy kind of sentences and little thought blips that go around. But uh, I thought it was just a great exploration of what it would be like to be you know, a 16-year-old kid right now in society. So it was great to read these two books back to back. Yes, because it sounds like they addressed very similar themes in completely different ways. Absolutely. And so any chance I have to see the range of what's possible to do on the page is great for me. Okay, I will keep that in mind as we go forward. John, is there anything you want more of in your reading life right now, especially in light of the fact that you're currently writing middle grade fiction? You know, I think I'm always eager to see new voices or new ways of of expressing stuff on the page because I feel like I'm only just now really getting to explore some of the ways modern writers are pushing the form of fiction. So I think that's definitely something I'm curious to do. I'll always need to have some backup, interesting slash boring nonfiction to go to for those times. (laughs) I have to just really shut off my brain. And I have a two-week book tour coming up. So um, I would love a book that I can dip into at the hotel as I'm trying to fall asleep before that early morning uh, call to hop on the plane to go to the next city. And that would be interesting, boring? It could be interesting, boring, or it could also be short fiction. I think I think I haven't talked about is I love great short fiction because some of the best things I've, I've read have been those sort of like 10-page stories that just are the perfect length to explore an idea. So BJ Novak is a friend. Um, his books are terrific. And his books of short stories are just some of the greatest. I can, you know, sometimes it's all leading up to sort of one last punchline, but other times it's a real, just a great exploration of what it's like to be in one moment. And you don't want them expanded out to books. You want them to be what they are. And um, so a good short fiction collection would be great too. Simon Rich is another writer I love who writes short stories. Readers, I've been traveling more than usual this winter, all in the name of books, and it's been more important to me than usual to have a book or, you know, six with me wherever I go. I typically read physical books because I like to hold them in my hand, but in a pinch, I use my e-reader or even my iPhone, and I like to keep it stocked with great e-books for just such a time. Did you know that we publish a list of e-book deals every day on my blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy? These are books that are on sale at a fantastic value, and they're handpicked every morning. We don't share stuff just because it's free or cheap. We share great books available at a better than usual value. These are books we think you, What Should I Read Next listeners, and Modern Mrs. Darcy readers will enjoy. Check out today's list at bit.ly slash mmddeals. That's capital M, capital M, capital D, deals. Then either save that bookmark to your phone or browser or sign up for the list to be delivered by email so you'll always have a list of ebook deals at the ready for when you need something great to read on an airplane. Again, that's bit.ly slash mmddeals, capital M, capital M, capital D deals for a curated list of ebooks on sale. Okay, well, let's start with the middle grade because that feels less daunting to me. Have you read Wildwood by Colin Malloy? I have seen it on the shelf and I've not read it yet. People recommend it. So tell me about it. Okay. I like this for you. So he's the front man for the Decemberist, which is kind of fun. And his enormously talented wife, Carson Ellis, does the illustrations. And this is also a trilogy. trilogy. So that might be a mm-hmm. pleasing kind of symmetry to Arlo Finch. What I like about this for you is it's also a series that where the protagonist has to straddle two worlds. And this is a little bit Narnia-like in that there's a magical portal where you can walk from your very safe suburban neighborhood in Portland, Oregon, into this otherworldly land that operates by entirely different rules. And I believe there are a whole bunch of talking animals. It's been a few years since I read this for the first time. But when I say it straddles two worlds, I mean like it straddles two worlds. Mm -hmm. It's magical and fun and whimsical without being cheesy 
or Iroli. I guess it's no surprise as a musician, he has a really great feel for what what words sound like on the page, you know, the cadence of the prose. And I know that sounds like super pretentious the way I just said it. He writes the kind of prose that middle graders appreciate. So as an adult, you might not even notice. You just be like, I really like this. Why? And you kind of have to drill down to identify what exactly it was that was really speaking to you from the page. This does not sound to me like your trilogy, but I think it has enough similarities that it would be fun for you to read. That sounds great. Very cool. Ooh. Well, while we're talking about playing with language, have you read any Kwame Alexander? I have not yet. And so that's high on my list. So tell me where I should start. Um, well, that's hard to say. Okay. When in doubt, you just go with your favorite, right? Go. Start with the crossover. So this is not his newest. That is booked. He tells such great stories about people. He's really able to develop his characters so well, make them really uh, interesting, jump off the page, compelling, make you really care about them. I'm always impressed, especially in this kind of format, a novel in verse, when an author can really create an intricate web of relationships on the page in not a ton of words. And he really does that here really, really well. And I like how he makes both the adults and kids sound like real, actual people with real problems. Not, you know, the adults just aren't like cardboard stand ins for the kids to either look up to or antagonize or whatever. And uh, it's just so much fun to read. So I just started the new uh, translation of The Odyssey. It sounds like it might be a good sort of mix oh, and match to, to that. I've heard such wonderful things about that. How is it? I'm actually just in the introduction parts. I'm just where she's setting up sort of like trying to place it in the world and the real question of who Homer was. And But it sounds like it might be a good compare and contrast, you know, a modern story told in verse versus an ancient story told in verse. Yes, that sounds like a lot of fun to me, especially because when you were talking about Call Me and the Daniel Handler book, you know, to have books that share something important in common, where it's tackled from totally different directions, has really appealed to you in the past. That sounds like a lot of fun to do again in this way. That sounds great. What do you know about Orphan Island? I know nothing about Orphan Island. Tell me about Orphan Island. This is another big middle grade book of recent years, and I like it because it's kind of mysterious. It's set in the natural world. There's a element of magical realism. Orphan Island is a, it's an island. It's a mysterious place that has exactly nine inhabitants and they're all kids. And every year or so, a boat uh, sails up and drops off a new inhabitant. And one of the kids gets on the boat and sails away forever. There's this structure to how they live on the island. It sounds a little tiny bit like Survivor, but it's not too scary. If you're reading as an adult, obviously you can see this island as you read is a metaphor for childhood itself and what it means to grow up and become an adult. I don't know if I would be reading it on this level if I were 10 years old, but what I want to say is we talked about how adults read middle grade novels because they're great books. This is a great book that would appeal to my 12-year-old daughter and me, but probably for different reasons. Definitely my 10-year-old daughter and me for different reasons. My 12-year-old's growing up a little bit, which you're probably experiencing in your own house with maybe mixed feelings. Yeah, so uh, I'd finished Arlo Finch, the first draft of it, um, and my daughter who'd been a big Rick Riordan fan and Harry Potter had read all the books, uh, was completely 100% middle grade fantasy. About six months before I finished it, she'd moved up to YA fantasy, and which would seem like not a huge distinction, but it's a giant distinction in terms of the kinds of things that she's interested in. So now it's all female protagonists with, with knives who are assassins, and it's all that stuff. When she finally read Arlo Finch, she was like, yeah. And she like she responded <gasps> oh. most to... Yeah, she responded most to like the teenage, like the sullen teenage girl character who's a minor character in this first book, JC. It was kind of heartbreaking, honestly. Uh, but Orphan Island sounds terrific. And I can totally see what you're describing in the sense of you read it as a very different book as an adult than you would as a kid. Yes. But if you have a kid in your life who is also reading this, there is lots to talk through and talk about. Well, one of the things I find so fascinating about middle grade, and I think part of the reason why parents come around to embrace it is a lot of these books are read a chapter a night. It's that bedtime reading. With Arla Finch, I had to be very mindful of like, you know, how do you respect that time with a parent and a kid if they're reading this book together? Because you don't want the chapters to be so long that like suddenly you're having to stop in the middle of the chapter. You try to find ways that naturally, you know, it could go a chapter a night if you wanted to. Okay, since we're talking about our 12-year-old daughters, I just have to say that my 12-year-old daughter really loved the Book of Ember series. The first book is The City of Ember. These are by, shoot, I hate it when people say they don't know how to pronounce the name, but I have no idea how to pronounce her name. It's a 
Jeannie Duprow mm-hmm. and the seventh grade girls at my daughter's school flew through that series. So I don't know if it's for you, but since I have a post-it note to, uh, to remind me to get it from the library, that's several months old. Cause she already read it. I thought that was probably worth saying. Okay. Now for short fiction, John, I'm wondering about, I think it was when you said BJ Novak that I thought this, but have you read the new Tom Hanks collection? I haven't yet. I I like Tom Hanks a lot. So tell me about it. All right. So we all know Tom Hanks. So these are all short stories. The reviews have been mixed. Actually, you know what the reviews have said? The reviews have said that the collection itself is mixed. And I guess that's no surprise because this is not what the man has been doing his entire life. But I think this is a lot of fun because there's a little name dropping. I think you would appreciate. There's a typewriter that makes an appearance in every story. Apparently, Hanks in real life is a massive typewriter I've heard, nerd. I've heard that, yeah. And I, I love typewriters too, but I'm not the kind of nerd that he is. <laughs> when you said you needed something to read on book tour, I thought about this right away because there is one story in the collection that is about, it's about a press junket to promote a new movie. And it's written the perspective of a young actor out on, I almost said book tour. You're the one on book tour. He is out doing publicity for a movie. And so you hear his like country by country European tour to promote this new release. And I think that might be, I think that might be a fun, fun timing for you to read this one while you are on your own book tour. I will order that tomorrow. So uh, that, that sounds great. John, it's been so much fun talking with you. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. A great conversation. So thank you for your recommendations that those are going to be some really good books for me to, to have with me as I'm going on this tour. I have to pack light. So one or two of them might end up being Kindle rather than physical editions, but they will get read. I can't wait to hear what you think. And I can't wait to listen to launch. Best of luck. Thank you very much. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John today. Make sure to check out his show launch premiering this morning and head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for John and let him know there what you thought of my recommendations. His new book, Arlo Finch in the Valley of Fire, is coming February 6th, wherever new books are sold. Visit the show notes to see the full list of titles we talked about today and to leave your comments. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 115. That's 115. Readers, we have another great episode coming your way next week. Here's a little sneak peek. You know when you put a book down because it's just not the right time to read the book, but you're not putting it down because you're giving up on it and you'll never pick it up again. It's, I'm putting this down because now is not the right time for me to finish this book. I don't have the brain capacity to become immersed in this story. If I put it back on my to-be-read shelf, there's a chance that the time will come when I'll be interested in that one again. Next week's episode is going to be different than any other episode we've done in a really fun way that I think you're really going to like. But no spoilers here. Subscribe now so you can listen wherever you get your podcasts next Tuesday. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.